So we're rescuing people who who have been trafficked and who have made contact with their family or, or their family has realized that they were trafficked and, and contacted us saying, please help. So normally a call comes, someone has been trafficked or if we're lucky, is still being trafficked and hasn't crossed that border yet, hasn't been harmed yet. We gather the evidence that we have to work out where they are. We have people who, who will then go to their location. If we can call on the police to intervene, then we certainly do. But if we can't or if there's just not enough time, we set up an escape. So we don't go kicking down doors and, you know, busting in and, you know, we don't have guns, nothing like this. When everything goes well, the rescue will conclude with us having a car and being kind of, you know, parked outside the house or the building where this woman is kept, communicating with her saying, when you have a chance, run and we're, we're outside and she'll run and jump in the car and we'll take off. So it's about setting up an escape because even trafficked women may have some degree of freedom. I mean, especially if they've been trafficked for some months or years, they'll need to go to the market or even if they're being held in a brothel, they need to go and get their nails done or get their hair done. So there are these moments of vulnerabilities that we exploit where right now no one's watching. Okay, now we go. We've done rescues where we've been able to find that person and bring them home on the same day that we got the call. And there are rescues that have taken a year, depending on how complex it is to find them. Hello everyone, my name is Dean Long and welcome to the podcast Lifeline. In this podcast, I will interview people who are having a positive impact in their community and have a strong message that deserves to be shared. We will dive deeper into their journey becoming a change maker and hopefully you can take away some insights for your own journey. And please do subscribe to Lifeline on YouTube, Apple Podcasts or any platform that you are using. And also you can share this episode with your friends if you like it. It's really what helps me the most. In today's episode, you will meet Michael Brozowski, who is co-founder and co-CEO of Blue Dragon Children's Foundation. Him and his team at Blue Dragon are providing exceptional care to street kids in Vietnam with the dream that every street kid has someone taking care of them. They started supporting street kids back in 2002 to lift them out of poverty and to send them back to school. When they realized that street kids were also a vulnerable target for human trafficking, they embarked on a journey to fight trafficking and rescue trafficked people in Vietnam. Since 2002, Blue Dragon has had an enormous impact and has rescued 1,049 people from trafficking, sent 5,739 kids back to school and training, placed 359 teens in job served 621,193 meals, built 210 homes for families, obtained legal papers for 13,518 people, and much more. Michael shares how his childhood shaped his willingness to help other people, how he started this 20-year journey by teaching English to street kids in Hanoi with a group of volunteers, 
and how Blue Dragon has evolved over the years with now more than 100 staff dedicated to their purpose. We also discuss his initial career as an English as a second language teacher, his love for Vietnam, and his advice to everyone who wants to make a change. Just start with what you are good at with other people. You will love this episode. This episode is uh, amazing. We go in depth into what Blue Dragon is, how they operate, what is their dream. So if you enjoy it, please share uh, with your friends so that more people can know about the work of Blue Dragon. And of course, if there is any way you can support them, uh, go ahead. So enjoy this episode and see you in 90 minutes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much, Michael. I always start by some random stuff where I just share a bit how I know you, how I know uh, your organization in, in this context, and why I decided as well to that I wanted to speak about uh, all of what Blue Dragon is doing about you know rescuing children in crisis throughout Vietnam. I got to know you in 2018 from my friend uh, Amy, who was working uh, with Blue Dragon. And since basically, I, I mean, there's, it's an issue that you are working with, Blue Dragon, especially on the angle of human trafficking that I don't know much about, but I always had it in mind. And then one day I, I went to, I did the Hazang Loop with some friends and we met um, some locals who were sharing a bit, you know, that some kids have disappeared a bit about the reality about this. And then I immediately connected from what I heard about Blue Dragon. And since then I cannot stop thinking. I mean, you know, it doesn't leave my mind. I know it's an issue that exists and that I don't know much about, but I know it exists. I know through all the stories that you share with Blue Dragon. Um, so yeah, I think for me, I really wanted to invite you, someone from Blue Dragon to share a bit more. I was a bit stressed to invite you to be honest. I was like, oh, let's be so busy. <laughs> but then, yeah, you were so chill on the email. So it made me more confident. Um, but yeah, that's a bit the context. And I always start, uh, if you want to introduce yourself, uh, where you are calling now, or just, you know, anything that you'd like to share to kickstart. Sure, sure. And I, I can't believe you were stressed about asking me that. <laughs> I was really happy to to get your message. Um, you know, Blue Dragon started, uh, you know, back in 2002, 2003. And when, when it was starting, you know, I had no idea what I was doing, absolutely none. And I knew it as well. And, and at that time, when I was going around saying that uh, I was going to start this thing, there were people who were really supportive and people who were really dismissive. And, you know, that's always lived with me. So when I get a, a, an email from, from someone who is trying something creative, doing something a bit cool, I'll always respond um, because, because I know what it's like to be, to be dismissed by someone who thinks they're, they're too big for you or too good for you. That's not me. No, I'm, so I'm speaking to you from Hanoi. Um, I've, I've lived here in Vietnam since 2002. So uh, actually, at the time that we're talking, I'm coming up to 20 years in, in Vietnam, which surprises me as much as anybody. Uh, but I, I grew up in Australia. I, I was born in Sydney. And, and then when I was about 12, my family, lived, my family left the city and we went to live on a block of land in northwestern New South Wales. And this was like, you know, it was 30 kilometers to get to school every morning. 
Um, and for my senior school, it was a 60-kilometer trip each way. So, so this was a hard life. And, and you know, at we, when we first moved there, too, there was no house on the land. There was no electricity, not even running water. Um, and, and so I come to Vietnam with, I guess, a bit of an unusual background and, and uh, in, in that I, I grew up in quite a bit of disadvantage myself. And, and in starting Blue Dragon, it was just a way to, you know, to, to help kids out, you know, kids who were basically just like me. So, so that's how I got to be where I am, a little bit of accident and, and serendipity, um, a lot of good fortune along the way. Cool. And actually, it's great that you speak about your childhood because I, I try to do a lifeline, hence the name of the podcast. But really, I always start with the childhood, like... Um, just trying to understand, yeah, where did people grow up? How was the childhood? Um, maybe could you elaborate a bit, like this part of your life, your childhood as well? You know, what were your childhood dreams back then, if you had any? Yeah. Well, look, when before I moved out of Sydney, I lived in a very industrial part of the city. My parents worked in factories. Um, Uh, but we were well off in a, in a way. We had our we had a home, and and you know we never went hungry. Nothing like that. Moving up to the to the countryside as we did was was almost like a step into poverty. Looking back, it was a very odd thing to do, and and in in part, I'm very glad that we did it because it shaped a lot of who I am. Um, but it was also very hard, um, you know, being so isolated from our house. You know you. You couldn't see anybody else. There was, um, you know, there were no neighbors. In fact, I remember when a car drove past, we would all like run to the window to see, well, who's that? Who's, who's driving past? You could go a week and no one drove past. Um, so, so it was very isolating. And, and I, I really, I grew up with really mixed ideas about what my future would be. I was always very, Uh, creative and good at writing, and so I, so I wanted to be maybe a, a journalist or, or you know, something, something to do with writing. Um, and one of my one of my main role models was my English teacher um, at at school. And and so and I eventually did actually become an English teacher. But al along the way, part of it dawned on me that I wanted to help others. Um, it was like a feeling of. You know, I just wish that somebody would come and pick me out of this situation that I'm in. You know, we, it was very isolated. I'm the youngest uh, of three kids. And, and so when my brother and sister left home, it was just me and, and my parents. And, um, and, you know, as a teenager, that, that wasn't a whole lot of fun. Um, you know, we'd spend the weekend jackhammering to, to build a new retaining wall or, or digging a cellar to to build under the house you know there wasn't a lot of uh childhood pleasures in that um but but again it was very formative and um and and so when i was going to high school some some vietnamese refugees one day just turned up at my school now this is country new south wales i was the most foreign person in the school i think because of my surname my father's a german immigrant don't speak a word of german Uh, the only time I've ever been to Germany was for lunch. Uh, and and um, I, I was in Switzerland at the time. So, you know, I have no connection with, with Germany or anything, and yet I was seen as a foreigner. 
And then all of a sudden, uh, I think there were six uh, Vietnamese kids turned up. They, they had been in a camp in Malaysia and then relocated to, to this country town. I can't remember how it was that they ended up in this country town. You know, the school had never had someone before who didn't speak English. And, and so I started volunteering my time to, to teach them English. It worked well for me because I got to get out of sport uh, so that I could teach them uh, English. And I found a real pleasure in, in helping them. And, and I was also blown away by their stories. You know, I thought my life was difficult. They had stories of pirate attacks um, when, when they left Vietnam by boat. And, and so it was certainly very humbling. And, uh, and, and that kind of experience made me realize that, yeah, there are people in our world who go through extraordinary trauma and, and the simplest things um, are a major help to them, like teaching them English when they've turned up in an English-speaking country. So, so those, my, my early years were certainly formative, even though at the time, you know, I, I really wished that, uh, that they would be over. I really love when you say, you know, you, you, I mean, when you look at the roots of why you want to help and support people, and it's because I wish someone had done this for me. And mm. then you just do it for other people as soon as you can. I really love this. Um, yeah. And maybe to come back on, um, you mentioned your, your English teacher was your role model. Um, why is that? And, you know, what did the English teacher do to, that you wanted to emulate? Well, the, you know, the main thing that she did was she saw good in me. I was a troublemaker at school. Um, I was always getting into fights or, or working out how to subvert the system. Um, and, and a lot of it was because I was unhappy at home. And, and you know, as a kid, you bring that to school. Um, and, and, and I didn't really feel that I fit in. I, I'd grown up in Sydney and, and here I was, and it was a tiny, tiny school. Um, you know, there were 13 of us in grade 10 when, when I reached grade 10. That's how small the school was. And it only went to grade 10. Then I had to move to another school. So, I, you know, I was always in, in trouble. And, and a lot of my teachers thought I was just bad news. Um, I, don't think, I don't think my family thought that I, I would amount to very much. Uh, and, and, and yet he was this one person who really believed in me and showed me that she believed in me. Um, you know, she let me try things. I started a school newspaper Um, and I was the I was the managing editor of, of this little school newspaper that the that the teacher herself typed up at night and and um, formatted and everything because this is before you had Word and and all of these programs. She, I think she did it on a typewriter. Um, and and that really inspired me that 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 was all it took. One person believing in me, showing me that they trusted me, that they knew I was capable. Um, seeing beyond, you know, the exterior that I put up. And, and that led me to say, well, I want to be like that. And, you know, we do that in life. We, when, when someone inspires us, we say to ourselves, I want to be like that person. Um, and, and so I ended up heading off to university to, to become an English teacher, English and ESL, so English as a second language. Wow, it's great how these two things, uh, I mean, like 
being inspired by your English teacher. And I really love it. The trust, I think it's such an important thing in maybe in a space where no one trusts you and maybe not even yourself. There is someone who's like, no, this guy, he can do so many things. And then it can just empower so much uh, someone and really love how, I don't know, it's like you combine yeah, English teaching and then what you've been doing, teaching English with a Vietnamese student to make it your new dream to follow. Um, yeah, yeah. And, you know, jumping ahead to today, um, just just before I got on this interview, I was I was chatting with, um, I was having lunch actually with, with some of my, my team from Blue Dragon. And, and there's one boy, uh, we were talking about one of one of the street kids, uh, and he's a lovely, lovely kid. And we were actually talking about how lovely he is, and and then one of the other staff who was there who knew him when he first came to Blue Dragon sort of had a bit of a laugh, and pointed out that he wasn't like that when we first met him. Now we've only known him for about six months, so I asked a bit more, and 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 this is such a common thing. Very often when we meet kids for the first time, they they've always been the trouble kids and everyone, mm. everyone believes that they're bad. Their parents tell them, Oh, you're no good. Their teachers might, might pick on them uh, and tell them, Oh, you're, you're stupid. And, and then they end up on the street and maybe they're getting in trouble here. Then we meet them. And, and, you know, sometimes in weeks, otherwise months, you see this turnaround in kids where for the first time they have people who believe in them. And, and it's just incredible. Sometimes then when we meet with their parents, the parents will be saying, oh, he's, he's always dishonest. He's always running away. He's always stealing. And we'll be saying, no, you know, it, we've, we've had this kid in our care for months. He's never done any of that even one time. And, and you know, it makes me conclude, drawing on my experience as a child and what I see in Blue Dragon, that you get out of people what you expect. If, if you mm-hmm. meet someone and, and your expectation is this person's going to rip me off, this person's going to deceive me, then they probably will, or at least you'll believe that they will. And, and if you believe this is a good person and, and they're going to do their best for me, then there's a very good chance that they will. Wow, I really love that. <laughs> no, but it's, yeah, it's really the power of, yeah, no power of trust. And I remember, I really love what you said. I never thought about it this way. Like, uh, You'll get what you expect from people. It's so important. Mm. Um, and yeah, no, I think coming back to when you started studying English teaching and ESL, did it you know, fulfill what you were looking for at that time? No. And, <laughs> and, and, and it was a huge disappointment to me because from that time in about grade 11, when I, when I decided this was what I want to do, it was my dream to be a school teacher. And I loved university. I loved learning about education. Um, I loved going, going to schools. Um, you know, you couldn't get me away from it. And then I got my first job and it just wasn't what I'd wanted. And I think there, are, there were a couple of things. One was that I had um, my expectations too high, that I was, I was wearing some rose-colored glasses. Frankly, teaching is hard. It's really, really hard. And I have the deepest respect for every teacher out there. Um, also, I was in a school that, that was probably a bad fit for me. And that was me, not the school. Um, I, you know, I'm the least sporting person that, you, that you'll ever interview. 
Um, you know, I, I'll say to people, throw me a ball and, and I'll break my arm. Um, and I was in a school, I was placed in a school um, that was selective based on sporting ability. So, you know, I, I, was, I was in this school that was really different to, to me. It was a great school, but not for me. And, and as well as that, I was living really far from my family and from my friends. You know, I, I didn't have any community. Um, and so it just didn't work. Um, I, uh, uh, I, I stuck with it for two years and then I left. After two years, I left. And I went to work somewhere else. I took on a different a career path. And, and that didn't work either. You know, within six months, I went back to my school saying, hey, I, I've decided I really want to work here again. And they took me back. Uh, but, but I could see it just it wasn't right for me. And, and, and that second time that I was back at the school, what I realized was that I wanted to do, I wanted to help the kids a lot more than I could as a teacher. So as a, as a teacher, and this is true in a lot of systems in a lot of countries, and I think, it, I think we need to really reevaluate this. As a teacher, my job was to get kids ready for exams and to, for, to help them get the best results that they could on that exam. And, and these were kids, they were, you know, they were mostly kids who were the children of immigrants or they were immigrants themselves. They had so many challenges in their life. You know, they were living with, with parents who had escaped war. Um, I remember teaching some kids from, uh, from Iraq and Iran who, who talked about running from, from the military and, and being shot at while they ran. You know, these were 12-year-old, 13-year-old kids telling me these stories. They didn't need help to get ready for an exam. They needed so much more. And as a teacher, I couldn't do that. And, and I, so I found that really frustrating, um, which, again, coming forward now to think about Blue Dragon, it's one of the things that I love about my work that, that we don't have to be limited to say, well, we only do this thing. And, and when we get to talking about Blue Dragon, you'll see that. What we do is very comprehensive. If you need something, then we'll find a way to do that. Um, nothing is off the, off the table. But as a school teacher, you know, it's very narrowly defined. Um, and it has to be because it's such a big system. Um, but, but, yeah, it was very dissatisfying despite my dreams and my hopes. So it was a bit disillusioning. And, and again, utmost respect to, to people who, who are teachers. Is that when you realize, okay, let's, um, you know, try to find something that fits you more by moving to Vietnam or it's not, uh, you know, the consequence? Well, what had happened was I came to Vietnam on a holiday. And, and it was my first holiday out of Australia. Uh, I actually went to Thailand and I went trekking through Chiang Mai and, and then came to, um, to Ho Chi Minh City. And, and I just absolutely loved the, the people of, of Vietnam. Um, some, something about the whole country really intrigued me. You know, the constant movement and dynamism, the optimism of people. Um, and, and, and so I was only here for a short time and I wanted to come back. So I came back and I explored a bit more of the country. And, and then later on, you know, a year later, I was back again um, exploring further north. I only ever got as far as Hue. Um, I never got further than Hue uh, by about my third or fourth trip. And I thought, this is actually where I want to be. So I was unhappy in Australia. Um, I was happy here in Vietnam. So I thought, 
okay, nothing to lose. So I, I left my job, um, went back to university in Australia for a couple of years to do a master's degree because uh, I thought that would help me once I got to Vietnam. Um, and then I came over. But no, I, I actually had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't come here thinking I'm going to set up a charity. In mm. fact, I really thought I was going to come and, and have a bit of an easy life uh, that, that I'd you know, pick up some teaching or, or do something like that. Didn't have any plan. Mm. No, it's uh, it's so funny to see the link, you know. I mean, when you the school welcomes the Vietnamese students, when you have no idea what would happen later, but it's I mean, is it is it why you decided to go to Vietnam as well? Yeah, that was part of it, but but also because in the school where I was teaching, in the sports high school. Um, it was it was half selective based on sporting ability and half was the, the local community. And the local community was mostly Vietnamese, uh, very, very diverse. You know, as I said, there were kids from Iraq and Iran, really from everywhere in the world, but predominantly Vietnamese. And, and these students really caught my interest because I knew that they were all coming from really challenging home environments. Um, but I could also see in them this desire to do well, to, to learn. Um, it, it, was, it was really obvious in, in, in the Vietnamese uh, group of students that I taught. And, and so with all of those experiences that I'd had, I was just intrigued and I wanted to see where are these people from? You know, what is this country, Vietnam, all about? Um, you know, I'd met all of these wonderful Vietnamese people Now I had to go and see their country. It's so interesting when I, because um, really feel, you know, you as a teacher, as you mentioned, you prepare students for exam, but what you want to do is to pre prepare them for life or mm. for anything that emerges. And I, I, I interviewed recently a bas former basketball player and who's, who's also coaching. And she told me this sentence a good coach will make you a better player, but great coach can change your life. I was like, what does mm. it mean? And she told me she had good coaches in her life, which made her a better player, but only two great coaches who not only cared about her playing ability, her basketball skills, but really try to understand, okay, how can I you know, go all in and make her life better or understand everything that might prevent her from being a good player, but beyond the basketball court. And I found it so interesting. And I can see a bit the parallel here where, okay, I can see the limit that surrounds you. And again, you mentioned it's a system and it's difficult to change. Um, and yeah, I've, I've, I've tried to stalk you as much as possible <laughs> for the last few, few weeks. Um, Blue Dragon website as well and some of the stories that I've read and maybe is, I think it's a great transition now but there's one other tipping point I mean not tipping is a bad word but one other let's say story that made me really made me think again of Blue Dragon is I, I saw one of the story of on Facebook uh, of Leung who got a bicycle when he was younger, which allowed him to go to school because many kids have to walk, I don't know how many hours, kilometers just to reach school. And Blue Dragon 
offered him a bicycle and you know a few years later he's doing so well he gave back and gave bicycles to a blue dragon for the kids and i found yeah. it so amazing that that i mean first the first bicycle has so much impact but that you have so much impact and people really care about blue dragon that they come back and you are also there to create this loop and cycle and i found it so so amazing Yeah, yeah, one thing that we do perhaps a little bit differently to a lot of NGOs is um we we don't talk so much about the project cycle. Um so in in a lot of development you you look at at the project cycle at the start and at the end of it. Uh and and our view is we're here for the long term. If we start something, we stick with it. Um now in parts of our work we we do actually find a way that we can maybe uh eventually move along so that we're not needed um but that might take 10 years so for example the first human trafficking work that we did involved rescuing a 13-year-old boy from Hawaii um he'd been trafficked to Ho Chi Minh City um and and we we got him home and and we thought okay let's let's find out what's going on here in his family why he was trafficked and in doing that we found actually it's not just him there were heaps of kids from all around his village and then we looked further and further and we found there was this huge problem of kids from that area being trafficked to uh, to Saigon and and so we started systematically going and finding them and getting them home and then supporting them uh so that that first rescue was in December 2005 and we're still working in Hawaii we uh we have actually stopped the trafficking kids from Hawaii are no longer trafficked to the garment factories of Ho Chi Minh City as they were but we still have a presence there uh so so you know there's a longevity to what we do and that boy knock um is now one of our staff in Hawaii a boy who who I met on the streets of Ho Chi Minh City selling flowers is now one of my staff ending human trafficking in in Hue province and making sure it doesn't come back so that longevity looking at things without saying we're going to do this but in 3 years we need to be finished or in 5 years this must be done where there until it's done and 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 so we do have really long and deep relationships with both with kids and of course as they grow up into adults and with communities one interesting thing is that sometimes people don't even really know who we are they they may not recognize blue dragon as a name because we don't go around putting our logo on things so we've built 100 plus houses for families we never put our logo on that person's house it's their house not ours why would our logo be on it and and we'll help their kids go to school and so on but we we're kind of we 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 don't really play up hey we're from blue dragon children's foundation um we we don't give them our sign to you know we don't brand a calendar and give it to them to hang on their wall and and this kind of thing so people just know us as michael and van and twi um they they may not actually realize the organization behind us some do some do but they see it as much more of a personal thing that someone is helping them rather than this institution 
is helping. And, and that changes the dynamics as well. It just makes me think about so many questions. Uh, so interesting. Maybe if it, maybe just to make put everyone on the same page, could you share a bit and explore, you know, what are some of the, well, that, not, that I was going to say issues that Blue Dragon is addressing, but maybe, you know, what are mm. the different human trafficking challenges in Vietnam? And also, you know, who are the people most at risk in Vietnam to be in these systems? Yeah, sure, sure. In fact, what I should do is take a step right back to um, to say that when we started, our very our first few years were focused entirely on helping street kids in Hanoi. Now, they were mostly boys, and they were mostly from just three provinces around Hanoi. They were coming coming to the city, usually because of poverty, and and earning money often by shining shoes and sending that money home. So when Blue Dragon started, we didn't. We weren't even thinking about human trafficking. It was just, how do we help these street kids? Now, all these years later, we're still working with street kids, and we always will. And our objective is to make sure that every child, every street child in Hanoi, has somebody to look after them. Now, that might be Blue Dragon, by the way, and it might not be. It could be a government department or another organization. But but what we want to do is make sure that that there are enough of us around that every child who comes to the city uh, because of their problems at home will be safe. Um, and to that end, you know, we have, we have staff going out onto the streets in groups every night, going all around the city looking for homeless kids. We don't call that trafficking, by the way, but in some contexts, um, such as the US context, that what we deal with would be called human trafficking because there's a lot of commercial sexual exploitation of of the boys uh, and girls who are out on the streets uh, a lot of organized pimping but we deal with that through through our street kids program and and then along the way came this issue of uh, of human trafficking starting with knock um, you know that accidental meeting on the streets of Ho Chi Minh City where I could see this kid needs some help and and it led us to doing these rescue operations where we were going to the factories and finding kids, both girls and boys, uh, who, who had been taken from their families under the pretense that they were going to a better life. These kids, they were just incredibly poor. Um, they were from along the, the beaches and lagoons of, of Huey province. And later on, we also found that there was quite a lot of trafficking from of ethnic minority children from Dnbn province in the northwest desperately poor people and and the traffickers would come along with promises of you know your child will learn a, a trade it'll be good for their life they'll become tailors they'll 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 be rich but none of it was true they were sitting on concrete floors in these little little garment factories mostly family owned garment factories and they were just working 18 hours a day It, it was absolutely appalling uh, and people didn't realize it. it. So it took us, it took Blue Dragon, just that initiative to go looking and then to go back to the community and say, do, do you know that this is what's happening to your children? And when people realized it, they were outraged and, you know, community members and government officials alike 
because this was not what they thought was happening. They actually thought it was something good for the kids, and they were devastated to learn the, the reality of it. And so over about 10 years, we, we kept doing those rescues, getting those factories shut down, while also helping families in Huey province to break out of their poverty. So we'd build houses, we'd, we'd pay for their kids to go to school, we'd buy them chickens or pigs uh, to, to raise, or, or we'd teach them how to raise fish in the lagoons so that people could earn enough money that when someone came along and said, let me help you, they could, they could reply, I don't need your help, I'm fine. So anti-poverty with anti-trafficking hand, hand in hand. And, and it's been a great recipe for, for success. And then along the way, so, you know, we start with street kids and then we meet children being trafficked within Vietnam for labor exploitation. And then along the way, we came across a single case of a girl trafficked from Vietnam to China. And we went to look for her because we had, we had a couple of vague clues about where in China she was, but not enough evidence you know, to, to really get a, a police investigation happening. Um, and we found her and rescued her. And, and ever since then, we've been rescuing girls in China and more recently, Myanmar as well. Um, now, these are, these are girls, who, girls and women who, who go to China thinking that they're going with a friend or that they're going for a job. And, and discovering that they're deceived. You know, they're not women who go to become uh, sex workers and then change their mind. They're, they're people who are tricked and they're sold either into brothels or as, as brides, so sold to a man basically against their will uh, because that man wants, wants a child. And, and so that's the main issue, um, the main human trafficking issue that we're working on. And, and we actually... We believe that there might be a day when we can say that that trafficking doesn't happen anymore. That's what we're actually working towards. Could you maybe you know, walk us through how does a rescuing intervention look like? Like how long it is, when does it start, and throughout the process? Sure, sure. Uh, I guess that's the question everybody asks. And oh, to be honest, sorry for my non-originality. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No, in fact, what I mean is that it, it really is a question to, uh, you know, when, when I say, I kind of say a little bit uh, offhandedly, you know, we rescue them and, and, and that raises a lot of questions. Hang on, how do you do that? Uh, so I can't share all of the details, but I can share uh, in general. And, and I do want to say that, that our, the rescues that we do are in response to calls for help. So, so we're rescuing people who, who have been trafficked and who have made contact with their family or, or their family has realized that they were trafficked and, and contacted us saying, please help. Um, and, and the reason I say that is that there are, there are also organizations that will rescue anyone who is in a brothel, for example whether or not that person is saying, I want to be rescued. And, and we don't do that. We rescue people who are saying, I want to be rescued. Um, so normally a call comes, um, someone has been trafficked, or if we're lucky, is still being trafficked and hasn't crossed that border yet, uh, hasn't been harmed yet. Um, we 
gather the evidence that we have to work out where they where they are. We have people who who will then go to to their location. If we can call on the police to to intervene, then then we certainly do. Uh, but if if we can't, or if there's just not enough time, we set up an escape. So so we don't go kicking down doors and and um, you know busting in and you know it's not we don't have guns, nothing like this. We when when everything goes well, the rescue will will conclude with um, us having a car and being kind of you know parked outside the house or the building where this woman is kept communicating with her saying when you have a chance run and we're we're outside and and she'll run and jump in the car and we'll take off so it's about setting up an escape and sometimes it might be uh, because even trafficked women may have some degree of freedom um i mean especially if they've been trafficked for some months or years they'll 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 need to go to the market or even if they're being held in a in a brothel they need to go and get their nails done or get their hair done. So there are these moments of vulnerabilities that we exploit where right now no one's watching. Okay, now we go. We've done rescues where we've been able to find that person and bring them home on the same day that we got the call. And there are rescues that have taken a year, depending on how complex it is to find them. Very often, you know, when it, when a Vietnamese person is in China against their will, they don't know where they are. Uh, they can't read the street signs, right? They, uh, they, they might even be deliberately confused. That first rescue that we did, which is back in 2007, there was a whole brothel full of girls. So actually, we ended up rescuing uh, six or seven from that, from that brothel. They, they could have walked back to Vietnam, but they didn't know. So when they had been taken across the border, they were they were put in a car and just driven around and around and around and eventually taken back to this brothel. Now, they thought they were deep inside China and they were barely across the border. So when they call for help, we wish that they can tell us their address, right? Very, very rarely can they do that. So, so a lot of investigation might have to take place if, if that's the situation. Do you risk anything as an organization or individual when doing these rescue missions? Yeah, and, and, I, and I like to start answering that question by really emphasizing that, that we do it as safely as we can. We're not trying to play hero. We're, we're not trying to, trying to be big men going in and saving the day. It's, it's not like that. We, like I said earlier, we're here for the long term. We want to keep rescuing for as long as we need to. And, and so every rescue has to be done with everyone's safety in mind. Uh, we've rescued more than a thousand people, by the way, from uh, both within Vietnam and, and in China and also in Myanmar and a couple from some other countries as well. And, and, and you know, things do sometimes go a little bit sideways, a little bit pear-shaped, but we, we can always get out of it. And, and, and we... We work as closely as we can with authorities so that, you know, we don't want to do anything illegal. That's also very important. But at the end of the day, for all of that, yeah, um, there, there are people who certainly don't like blue drag because of, because of this work. 
sometimes they're dangerous people. Um, now, in that regard, it, that's one reason that, that it's very important that we collaborate with, uh, with police and with government authorities and don't try to go solo, don't try to be the big hero. Um, you know, the, the long-term solution to human trafficking is not in one NGO doing some brave deed. It's, it's all about collaboration, multiple organisations working with the government, working with the community together as a force for good together, uh, and that will get us to the end. And, and so, yes, certainly parts of what we do uh, are risky to us. Um, we understand that. We consider that it's far more dangerous to not act. You know, when, if someone was to call for help, they're in trouble. It, to not get them out is leaving their life in danger. So, so we see that what we do is necessary uh, and, and we do all we can to make sure that the next operation will also take place. It's very interesting when you say, yes, I mean, of course you don't do anything illegal. Actually, it's the traffickers who are doing something illegal. So it's yeah. trying to reestablish uh, the legality. I mean, well, it doesn't mean anything what I just said, but yeah, it's the traffickers who's doing something illegal and then you're just, you know, trying to rescue these people. Uh, no, thanks so much for sharing. It's so just open and on the door of, of things I didn't know <laughs> in my brain. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if we come back to... Yes, go ahead. Well, may, maybe one other thing I could add there. There are kind of two dangerous parts of our work. One is the, those human trafficking rescues. And the other is here in Vietnam that we, in, in our work with street kids, where we have dealt with people who abuse children. And, and actually of the two groups, they have proven to be the more dangerous of, of the two. The human traffickers, I think, see it kind of as a business. Now, we're a risk to their business. Um, the people who abuse children seem to have a, or feel that they have a lot more um, to, to lose. And, and they, can, they can be very dangerous. We have definitely had threats from, from those guys. Um, and, and we have to take a lot of care. Uh, the traffickers generally don't really know who we are, um, but but these abusers they they generally do know all about us. Mm. Uh, they they study us very carefully. So that's an interesting thought that that a lot of people don't don't realise. Of course, the traffickers are dangerous, but they're not the most dangerous people that that we come up against. Mm. Yeah, it's so 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 interesting i mean i didn't know anything about it so uh, for me it's just uh, so many things i i want to keep mm, exploring sure. um, and yes i mean you may you mentioned before you know doing all these rescue interventions and all the anti-trafficking uh work so you were working in anti-poverty working with street kids and you still do uh i think one i mean not defining, but something I can see around a bit in the website and many stories is you started actually, I mean, one of the first things you did is by teaching English to street kids. Uh, so I just wonder why did you do that uh, at that time? Yeah, and, and, and a very simple answer. That was what I could do. It was what I was good at. Um, and, you know, if, maybe if I'd been a doctor, maybe I would have been checking their health. If I'd been a chef, maybe I would have been cooking the meals. It was really a simple 
response that these kids are on the street and they're they're trying to earn money. What can I do that would enrich their lives? I can teach them some English. Now, of course, um, they need a lot more than English, and and these days we do a lot more than than teaching English. You know, we get the kids back to school. Uh, we help them find jobs. Uh, many have gone on to university. We have more than a hundred young people in university right now. Um, so that that was you know English teaching was was our way in to their lives right at the beginning. But again, just as when I was teaching, I very quickly saw English lessons are one part of many that they that they need help with. They needed a home. They they needed to be with their family. They needed to be in school. Um, but I started with the with the one thing that I that I was good at. And when did you? So I guess you. I guess you kept going and kept teaching them English. And when did you, you know, realize that okay, I actually want to be full time uh, doing this and helping street kids. Yeah, it it look that's an interesting story as well because the truth is that I was looking for ways to get out of it. So I was teaching at the uh, National Economics University, and some of my students there. Uh, would would volunteer alongside me because I'd go into to teach English and I'd be telling them these stories about I was out on the weekend and I met these kids. So some of my students um, now Fam Si Chung uh, was was perhaps the main one, and he's now in he lives in the US now and he's the president of Blue Dragon USA, uh, which is a five hundred one c three. But there were others, a young guy named Zung, and and then there was also a. Uh, another teacher, an economist, a Spanish economist named Gonzalo, and 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 so on, and and we were all just volunteers, and but but what we could see was this thing was growing. Uh, you know, we'd start off having a lesson with with one or two kids, and within a month there'd be twenty kids coming, and and it was kind of round the clock and nonstop. And the more we understood, the more complex it was. So. As we, as we got to know the kids, we realized, ah, this kid is in trouble with the police for something, right? How do we how do we deal with that? Uh, this one's running away from their mum because she beats them. How do we how do we help with that? So what I did, I started contacting other charities, saying, hey, uh, look, there's this problem here in Hanoi. Um, do you think you could come and help? At that time, I planned to live in Ho Chi Minh City, and I thought I was only in Hanoi for a few months, and. Uh, And you know, most by far, most organisations would at least respond and talk to me. But of course, they didn't have budgets or networks to start helping kids in Hanoi, and and so kind of one by one, they'd they'd have to let me know. Look, I'm sorry, but we really can't do that. And and some were happy to really give advice. Others, like I said right at the start, others were not. Um, and and then finally, I had this kind of dawning. This realization that that what I was doing was wrong, you know, I was concerned about a problem, and so I was ringing people saying, "Hey, I'm concerned about this, and I think you should fix it." You know, and and now all these years later, I get those calls sometimes from people. Uh, somebody will will message me and say, "Hey, Blue Dragon, you know, I know you help kids, so I'm here in this country or in this city." And there's this problem. I think you should come and and deal with it. 
just like I did all those years ago. And, and so I try to be very supportive. We can't, we can't just endlessly uh, grow and replicate ourselves as much as we'd like to. And, and you know, sometimes I, I have to say to those people, maybe it's actually for you to, um, to, to do something. Uh, and, 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 you know, I've, I've, I don't mean that in a negative way at all. Um, certainly I'll give advice and, and, and however I can help. But, uh, but I was in that situation. I saw a problem and I wanted to see who else could fix it. Eventually I realized, you know, I've got to fix it. And, and, and so that was how it gradually came to be that we went from a bunch of volunteers who had good intentions and were, you know, teaching some English to street kids to, to the organization that we are now. How long did all of that take? Well, a couple of years. In fact, we, we get into debates now about when did that start? <laughs> when were, was that at Christmas? Or uh, our record keeping wasn't, wasn't great right at the start. But, <laughs> you know, it was by, by the end of 2004, we were fully registered to work in Vietnam. So, you know, officially we started in late 2004. Unofficially, we started in late 2002. So I guess there's a couple of years there in getting ourselves set up. And, and I do say that too to anybody interested in coming uh, to start an, an organization. You've got to be prepared to give it 10 years before things really take off. Uh, and, and, th and there'll be 10 difficult years. It's what happened for Blue Dragon. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it took us a good 10 years to really work out what we wanted to do. We, we, And that still evolves, you know, that's not a fixed thing. It's not like on day one, we wrote down, we're going to protect every street kid and we're going to end human trafficking. Even that only actually crystallized for us a few years ago. Uh, and, and in that uncertainty, you know, you're in there, you're fixing problems, um, but maybe you don't really have that super clear, well-defined goal. And, and, and the only way to find that goal is actually to get in there and do the work. So there's a, it's an iterative process of, of doing something and learning from it, kind of clarifying things, then doing more. Um, and, and it can also be painful uh, because in, while you're doing that, you also need money to keep going. And, and yet you don't really have a cohesive story or, uh, you, you know, you can't really explain fully how you're going to achieve what, what you're talking about. Um, and, and to that, I have to say, thank goodness for generous people in this world uh, who, who give to charities like Blue Dragon and lots of others that are in those years of working it out. Um, and, you know, some of us get there and some of us don't. But, but it's all possible because, because people in this world are generous and, and believe in change. So, so give to causes like ours. I really love, like, for me, the best way to start any, an organization or anything is by, you just started doing things without, you know, ever thinking that it will become my organization, our organization, and, you know, without really planning anything. And the plan just comes when you need to. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a fair way of, of describing it. And, and, you know, I have my own very strong bias on this. I can't imagine starting something with a clear plan. Now, other people look at the way I've done it and, and think, how did you do that? That would have been terrible. 
uh, and and I'm in the other camp. I'm I'm looking at people who come with a plan, saying, "Why do you have a plan? That's not going to work." Um, so, I, I I'm a really big believer in in that organic process, letting it grow. You know, like when you put a seed in the ground, you can't you can't draw the picture of what that tree will look like in twenty years. You have no idea, and I kind of feel like that's how how it has been with Blue Dragon. I don't. I, I know a lot of what Blue Dragon will be in twenty years from now, but I have no idea what it will look like, and and I'm fine with that. How how many people were there uh, once you started? I mean, offic officially started in twenty. Uh, wait, in two thousand four. Yeah, there were by two thousand and four. We might have had like five or six people, um, but we're all we're all volunteers. Um, for a couple of years, I, you know, I didn't earn any money, and and then I had this wonderful friend, um, Hugh, and and his wife Susan, uh, and you know they started giving me from their pocket a hundred dollars a month, just so that I had something for for myself, um, and 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 other people would come on board, and I, eventually I realized I need to employ people, I need to pay them because otherwise they can't stay long. Uh, and and you know that there's a, there's a, often a lot of discussion around should should people who work for nonprofits be volunteered or, or should they be paid? If you want to keep people for 10 years, you need to pay them. I remember our very first paid uh, employee. Uh, we were having this conversation, and he was saying, oh, I, "I I think I might I might not really be able to help much anymore because I really need to uh, to get a job." And and I asked him like, what are you going to do? He was still a student, uh, and he replied, "Oh, I, you know, there's a, I know a restaurant where I can work." So I said to him, "Well, how much will they pay you?" And he replied, six dollars a day." Okay, this is 20 years ago, so six dollars a day. And I replied, "Okay, I'll pay you seven dollars a day," and that was my first wage negotiation. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, no, I'm asking because I heard in, I was listening to another interview of you just, just before as well, that now you have a team of 100. Yeah. Staff. Yeah. That's crazy when you think about it. Like <laughs> Tell me about it. And, and they're all, I mean, I, I could talk for an hour about what amazing people they are. We have lawyers on stuff. And again, that's one of the unusual things about Blue Dragon. We actually have full time lawyers on staff. And they're the people, you know, organizing rescue operations, representing people in court, um, help, helping families who don't have birth certificates. Uh, a lot of our kids get in trouble with the law. So, so you know, their work is, is really incredible. Then we have staff who are social workers and psychologists. Uh, we have people who've come to us from really diverse backgrounds, people who were in the hospitality industry and have switched over to, to something in, in – Social work. Um, some of our staff, about 10% of our staff, a little bit more now actually, um, were once beneficiaries of our program. Like I mentioned about NOC before, and 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 some are happy to be identified that they were once Blue Dragon kids, and some are not comfortable. So, you know, we, we don't always talk about that, but um, but we have staff in a range of positions, including. Very senior positions, who who once were children that that we helped, and and so there's a lot of diversity in our team. We we very deliberately uh, make sure we're employing people from ethnic minority communities, 
especially in our work in those communities. So ethnically, it's quite a quite a diverse group. Uh, we have people who've been with us now for 15 years, and of course, people who joined us last week. So it's a wonderful team. A lot of very different people and different ideas. Uh, and and you know, when when you harness that energy of a hundred very different people, you come up with something great. I I have a random question before I, I really love what you said. Have you read the book Reinventing Organization? Yeah, Frederick Leloup. Yes. Okay. So because I was listening to the other interview, I was like, wow, that sounds like something I, I heard also. Um, <laughs> another random question. Have, have you heard of Officience in Vietnam? Of who, sorry? Officience. Uh, it's a company based in Ho Chi Minh City. Maybe not, or maybe I'm not getting your pronunciation on that. Oh, office science, maybe. No, I, maybe oh. I haven't heard of them. Why do you ask? Because they are, they are the one who translated it in Vietnamese, uh, reinventing organization. Ah, right. Ah, fantastic. Yes. Um, we we have a staff library, and and I certainly have both the the English and the Vietnamese versions of that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, no, because I ask because they they try to you know, they, to gather this community of different you know organization who try to function as a teal organization mm. uh yeah i just found it very interesting and i didn't hear a lot of organization in vietnam yet who try to you know function with some mm. of the principle of this book ah. feels like we're speaking about the bible but it's, it's a management yeah book. yeah no there, there are a few um Uh, I believe Decathlon, which of course is a very big French mm. company. I, I believe that they are on a journey uh, to towards Teal, and uh, and and I, I know of a school, uh, a, a private language school that is, and for Blue Dragon. So a, a lot of people listening to this might not know what is this Teal, what is reinventing <laughs> organizations, but Frederick Leloup is a great thinker who who has looked at organizations uh, and their structures. And development, and and identified, you know, going from kind of the mafia where you've got one guy in charge and he'll beat you to death if uh, if you if you defy him, through to organizations that you might say are, are really enlightened, right? Um, and 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 have processes for their staff to share and and take leadership and so on. And he's classified those. So um, going back a few years. Uh, about six or seven years now, Blue Dragon was at a point where we'd grown a lot, and and I had views of of how organisations should work that um, I guess were a lot like Frederick Leloup, but Blue Dragon wasn't like that at all. Um, we had become quite hierarchical and structured uh, and bureaucratic, and and maybe people from outside the organisation wouldn't have even seen that but inside you could feel it um and you know when that happens you also get gossip and 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 cliques among the staff and and none of that's good you know how how can you care for kids when when the staff are divided among themselves and and so we went on our own journey to think let's reinvent ourselves what do we want to be like and and I, i've had amazing input from from a lot of different people you know well-known people like frederick Leloup uh, and the corporate rebels if you've never come across them you've got to look up their website um great friends like like ken everett uh, in in australia 
um, great business thinkers. Um, so, so even that is is an ongoing evolution. And and Blue Dragon, you know, for us to care for these kids who are in these extreme situations, it's demanding. It, it's often painful. So, as an organisation, we have to think: Well, how do we operate? This this isn't just like a philosophical question of of a of business structure. This is how do we organise ourselves um, so that we can sustain this. And 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 I think we've we've gone a long way in in that journey. It, it's been really exciting. How has your well, I think listening you saying that, and also knowing that you started, you know, just a few people, volunteers, to a team of 100 staff. I wonder, you know, how has your role of CEO, and now you are co-CEO, I think, if I'm not yes. <laughs> correct, uh, but, you know, founder, CEO, volunteer, where I guess you were doing pretty much everything, yeah. <laughs> everyone in the team when you started, to now, you know, how has your role evolved over the years? Yeah, um, so exactly as you say, when when we were very small back in those early years, I was the social worker, the cashier, the report writer, the cleaner, um, the one who got in trouble from the police when we did the wrong thing. Uh, uh, and and now it, it's actually a relief to have a team, I, I can say. Um, and yes, co-CEO, we now have two C- CEOs. Uh, and, and so my role has evolved to focus a lot on government relations with the Vietnamese government um, and and also the, the external, you know, the fundraising and, and communications and the management and administrative side of Blue Dragon. Whereas the other co-CEO, uh, Sky McConaughey, she focuses a lot more on the kids and and on the programs. Now, that for me, you know, it was a surprise that I would ever be happy to, to take on that kind of behind-the-scenes role um, rather than that direct front line. But, but actually, I'm really enjoying it because I can see the impact that my decisions make. Um, you know, if we raise money well, if, if, we, if we explain what we're doing, if, if we find ways to tell the world what's happening, that can have a huge impact on our ability to operate. Um, uh, and, and, and so... Uh, yeah, it, it is. A, it is a very different role now, and as co-CEOs, we work very, very closely together. Uh, we're very different people. Um, we we almost come from, or in some ways, quite different philosophical, sometimes even opposite approaches to to how we solve things. But that difference is a real strength, because at the end, you know, when we have to make that decision, well, what are we going to do? The question number one is what's best for the kids, and number two is what's best for the organisation. In that order, and and when you look at when you look at it from that point of view, you can actually work out how how to decide if, if there is a difference of, of opinion. I really like. I think I started to have this thought earlier when you mentioned, you know. Some people might not even know what is Dragon. They know the individuals that supported them along the way. Mm. I think from that, from that now it's like two 
co-CEO from the fact that you are trying to reinvent your organization. Yeah, I find it very interesting that you are, I mean, it's really, you are so, I mean, you, you as in you and Blue Dragon and everyone, but really, I think that's the definition of very purpose-oriented rather than individual. I mean, okay, everyone should know about Blue Dragon, but everything you say is really, okay, does it help the kids? And does it help us to help more kids in the end? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I kind of see us as like bamboo instead of as a, a metal bar. You know, we, we can flex and flex and flex. And recently during COVID was a really good example of that when, you know, a lot of organizations kind of had to mostly stop what they were du doing during COVID. Blue Dragon was busier than we've ever been ever before. So we were able to just switch to new kinds of work, not totally different, but still di some different activities. So for example, you know, we have staff who go out on the streets every single day looking for street kids. Well, those staff switched their work to delivering food to homeless people, children and adults, and, and also to delivering food to families who live in slum areas or on boats along the river. Um, And, and in fact, you know, people, people were calling us. We were, we were getting people calling saying, hey, I know this family who needs help. Or someone would ring and say, can you help me? And, and because of that really flexible way that we work, it's very responsive and adaptive. Uh, I, I honestly don't think we had to say no to anyone. The only people we, we would say no to would be people who could get help from someone else. Like if, you know, if, if actually their local government could, could support them, then we would say, go there. Or, or, or we'll ring the local government for you and connect you with them. Um, but, but if there was anyone who, who absolutely needed us, then, then we helped. Uh, so, so being like that bamboo, being flexible. And, and now, of course, you know, we've bounced back to almost to like we were before. We're not delivering food every day to homeless people now. Now our focus is back on, on street kids. But it's, it's a real strength to, to be able to do that. Definitely. Like earlier you mentioned that, you know, some in development world, you know, it's project cycle. So 2020, 2025, you have to do this and don't do anything else, right? Yeah. Well, I think from... Like one for those who are listening, one pillar of reinventing organization is like evolutionary purpose. Mm. So sensing, you know, what are the needs of our surroundings when it comes to our purpose? And I think it's definitely what you guys managed to do. And rather than, you know, okay, we said that we were going to do this and it's related. You said, yeah, you don't like plans. <laughs> so you're just, you know, go with the flow. But I think it works well. Um, this is a good example of how lean, flexible, as long as, you know, uh, I mean, it still fits with your core purpose, but then you are flexible to do new things. So yeah, it's really, yeah. Really cool. And, and, you know, we have some donors like the, the U S state department, um, at different times has funded our work and, and, and some other very big funding agencies and they like plans. That's for sure. So, so Obviously, we, we do have those plans and, you know, they have to be very detailed, very structured. But at the same time, we also have donors. You know, we, for example, we have a, a, a monthly giving club 
that we call dragon wings. And there are people who send $5 a month. Some people send $20. Some, some send $50 a month. And, and that money we can kind of use almost for any, anything, like it, wherever there's a gap, wherever there's a child in need. So, so we have these donors, like the U.S. government, who say, well, here's some money, and it's for exactly these things, and it's for this period of time. It'll start on this date, and it'll end on this date. And we also have donors who are sending their $20 every single month. And, and, and so we have that discipline from, from having to have, you know, to report to those major institutions uh, and, and do absolutely right, the right thing by them. And also the freedom and the flexibility that a lot of our individual donors give us. So our, our funding model is, is also very complex, as is the rest of Blue Dragon. Yeah, but yeah, it's good that you leave this space for flexibility. And, uh, you know, like I know <laughs> I have a lot of, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, I really, for me, the topic, the, the book <laughs> of Frederic Lalou, I really love it because it's when I joined the learning hub in Hanoi, it's everyone had read the book and they were trying to launch a space as a TL organization. And many of the, it was a co-working space and also event venue, but many of the people using the space are also trying to function as a TL organization. So the first assignment they gave me is read this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and it's great to do that and you know i don't agree with a hundred percent of everything that that frederick Leloup suggests or, or recommends and, and and i don't think he would be offended by that because i think even his ideas will will always be evolving yeah um, but you know having that input and getting it from different people i'm i also love to read peter drucker who is you know going back 50 years ago was a, was a major management guru. Um, and, you know, his ideas are very different to, to Frederick Lelou, but I have a lot to learn from him as well. And then guys like, you know, Jim Collins, um, th th there's, there are, there's so many different ideas that might all have something great in them. And, and I think each organization has to work out what is it, what is it that we believe and, and that we need and, 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 Maybe, maybe that leads you to purely following one philosophy, or, or maybe it leads you to to bringing a few together and creating your own. And that's a little bit like what Blue Dragon has done. Mm. Could you share maybe like one new practice that Blue Dragon has adopted since like 2014? Yeah, well, we have what we call the advice process, and and there are various people who 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 have an advice process and, and they use it in different ways. The way we use it is, so it's a decision-making tool. Very often what happens in dysfunctional organizations is the most powerful person in the room will make a decision. Uh, so maybe that's the CEO or a manager. We're going to do this now. Then everybody complains and grumbles, but does it or half, half does it because, you know, they have to, uh, everyone's unhappy It eventually falls apart, and, and then, then it gets fixed, and you start again. The advice process front loads the discussion, discussion process. So if I'm going to make a decision that affects people in the organization, I have to consult them. Now, not every single decision. It's like if it's something big or new, um, you know, not like 
will we have lettuce or carrots for lunch today? That, do- that doesn't need the advice process, but, but do we change our lunch hour? That needs the advice process. So questions, issues that, that would affect people and, and that are something new. So I'm compelled by this process to get input from everyone it would affect and also from anyone with expertise. And, and then it, it's not a vote. It's not about democracy. It, it's not even consensus. Um, so recently, uh, in fact, a, a good example of this, we recently introduced to Blue Dragon a new policy on giving our staff leave if they're affected by domestic violence. And, and we did that by, by researching policies that are online and then going to a staff meeting and saying, hey, look, this is, this is what we're thinking about doing. Because we know that domestic violence is an issue. More than 60% of women report experiencing some kind of domestic violence at some time in their life in Vietnam. It's going to affect Blue Dragon staff as well. Let's be realistic. So we said, this is what we're thinking of doing. We'd like your input. And, and everyone, they did it in small groups and they had opportunities to give feedback uh, privately. Then we went away and we drafted this policy. And in doing that, one, there was one very strong view that a lot of people felt we should not call it a domestic violence leave policy. We should call it something else. And, and one of the suggestions was safe leave so that people didn't have to feel embarrassed talking about domestic violence. Now, everyone was nearly unanimous in saying we shouldn't call it domestic violence leave. In the end, we did call it the domestic violence leave policy. And it was because as we, as we were going through this decision-making process, we thought, we don't want to avoid the issue. Th- this issue is taboo. We're trying to make it not taboo. We can call it something else, but that's just a euphemism. And a- anyway, everyone will know what you're talking about if you start saying safe leave. And, and so we made a decision that was different to what everyone in the organization wanted. But we went back and part of the advice process compels us to explain our reasoning and give people an opportunity to object. And so we explained, and no one objected. And now we have a pretty good policy giving, giving staff leave for, for domestic violence reasons, which you know we hope we never have to use. But that's an example. So previous to, to, to this um, evolution in the organization, I would have just written the policy and, um, and sent it out and said, you know, here it is now. And that would have been it. Maybe got input from a couple of people. Now we ask everyone, everyone who would be affected, and that's the whole organization in some cases. That's so interesting. How, how do you, and again, link to many things that you have said so far, um, I feel like, I mean, I've never been in, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, one, one challenge when it, an organization tries to transform themselves, it's the ego of managers or, you know, the senior management. I wonder how, I mean, if it was an issue and how did, are you dealing with it? Or maybe it's not an issue. I don't know. <laughs> there, there were certain people who had, uh, who had that block to, to change. They wanted power or they thought, oh, these ideas are just ridiculous. Um, those people eventually moved on. Um, You know, and, and, and that's fair enough. It's, this is not for everyone. Uh, other staff struggled, and some even still struggle a little bit. 
So even with that idea that it's not a vote, you don't the, the winner isn't the person with the most votes. Uh, there are some people in the organization who still sometimes struggle with that a little bit uh, because, you know, they've grown up in such a different, with a, with a different philosophy. Um, but everyone's, everyone who stayed is able and, and, you know, mentally agree, but maybe sometimes they, they struggle a bit to implement it. Um, so there was, there was a process there of, of a bit of inner struggle that some people had. Leading, you know, leading to some people leaving, leaving the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but what we have now works really well. And, and when new people join, they very quickly adapt to this new environment. Um, now, one thing with this approach that we have is it's very non-hierarchical. And, and I do find that, that there are some staff who struggle with that. There are, there are a lot of people who, who say, no, no. Tell me who the boss is. Don't don't tell me that I can make a decision. Just tell me what to do. Um, th- that's that's a work in progress that we're still dealing with. It's interesting because it's the challenge is both sides from manager who might feel losing power, but maybe also person who used to have a manager like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Um, yeah, and and you know another part. It wasn't only about leave the organization or or just go along with it. It was also about working out, so what is the right role for, for you? Mm-hmm. If, so some people were in management positions and, and really struggled with, with that, but they were really good people, you know, and we didn't want to lose them. We may have been able to, for a lot of those people, we found other roles that they, that they now love to bits. And when they look back, they actually reflect, I hated being a manager. So that's been interesting to see. Yeah, but that's nice. And yeah, I mean, it's so important to be, I feel, because it's, it's, it's related as well to, I know, you know, when you say about trusting people, you got trusted and you want to trust people. Uh, you want, I mean, the mission of Blue Dragon is to trust, empower street kids. And I think mm. this advice process and everything you've been talking about is a way as well to empower the people we see in Blue Dragon first, and I find yes. it very interesting. Yes. Well, you see, that's the, that's the key thing at the end of the day. If I treat my staff in a, in a way of, I'm the boss, so you follow my orders, and I want you to really uh, negotiate with the kids and work with them and empower them, well, if the staff aren't empowered, they are not going to empower the kids. Hmm. If the staff are treated as get to work, you know, do this, do that, of course they're going to treat the kids like that. And companies that work in customer service will, will say the same thing, that uh, you, know, you, you treat your staff the way you want them to treat the clients. So for us, it's treat the staff the way you want them to treat the kids. And, and so that has led in the last few years. You know, we've seen just a flowering of, of our work, of, of getting amazing results in the most complex situations. And, and it's, it's a flow on, it's a ripple effect from, from the way we work with each other to the way the staff then work directly with children and families. Mm. Yeah, it's so nice to hear that. It, because the purpose is not, I mean, it's to empower staff and everything, but in the end, it's also, does it make Blue Dragon save, protect, support most street kids? And it does, so it's congrats. Yeah. Um, 
I wanted to come back on one point, which uh, more on around mental health. Um, I wonder for you or for Blue Dragon, but you know how you you must face here terrible stories. I mean, mm. inspiring stories, but also a lot of very difficult stories to hear. I wonder how do you deal with that? You know, not to go crazy or to to, to feel very sad every day. Yeah. No, that that's that's super important. Um, we within Blue Dragon we have a team of psychologists, um, and and they they are available to some extent to support staff, but but more importantly, what what they do is is help set and guide our approach to caring for for ourselves and each other. It's an ongoing thing, and it's something that's never perfect and never finished. Um, we we try to make sure that everyone, me included, has time off, has has a break, um, has has support. Um, it it is something that we f- we have found. You know, we have to pay attention to. If you just if you just assume that everything's okay, then things will go badly wrong. Mm. Um, and you know, at times in our history, uh, we 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 have been close to giving up. I've been close to giving up. There are different staff who've, you know, gone home feeling absolutely terrible and wondering, can I go on with this? Is it worth it? Um, so we've really learned from those bad experiences. In part, our structure as as a, a, an organic team is very helpful because it, because it means we're there for each other. One one of the principles in Blue Dragon is what we call total responsibility, which means that every person in the organisation is responsible for the organization's success. So it doesn't matter if you're a cook, if you're a CEO, if you're a social worker, uh, the, the guard looking after the motorbikes, you're responsible. Um, and so if you see someone not well, uh, if you see someone working too much, uh, you're responsible to either go over and have a chat to them or to talk to someone else and say, hey, that person needs some help. Um, so... So the way we're set up now helps us a lot. Um, and, and it takes the responsibility away from like one or two people. You know, the CEOs are responsible for that. We are, along with everyone else. Um, and so, so it's a shared responsibility that we're always working at. What made you not give up all these years? Sometimes... Sometimes it has been having just enough success. Uh, you know, it's amazing how far success will take you. A lot of things can be going wrong, but if some little things go right, you can, you can find the inner strength. Sometimes it has, it has just been a realization of, well, if I don't do this, then who will? And sometimes that has kept me going. And sometimes it's been a kick in the pants from, from one of my <laughs> colleagues saying, well, if you give up, then, then what, what are we all going to do? Um, uh, and, and I have a distinct memory of, of one of my key staff telling me that once. Um, and, and, and so at different times, it's been different things. But like you were saying before, we're, we're focused on purpose. And, and so things can go badly wrong, but you can still be focused on purpose if you're focused on achievements then when things go badly wrong you're hurt even more 
So we're looking at that bigger picture of, of the purpose. And, and we accept that at times things will be great and at times they won't. We keep our eye on that bigger picture. Yeah, it's... I, yeah, I love it. Uh, just enough success. You know, everything might be burning, but there's still this tiny tunnel of hope that keeps you going and gives you the strength to put water on all the fires. Yeah. You, you mentioned the story of the boy Luong, who, who we helped more than 10 years ago uh, and, and who recently, um, you know, came back and, and made a donation. When, when something like that happens, it's hard, it's hard to express the feeling that it has, on, the impact that it has on, on all of us at, at Blue Dragon. That sense of, wow, we, we did this one little thing and all these years later, he reveals how much it meant to him. You know, that, that's pretty motivating and, and, and there, there are some healing properties in that. But, but again, you can't, you, know, you, you can't rely only on on the successes because you also have failures mm. and, and, um, uh, and, and, and so you do need to be grounded and accept that sometimes, sometimes the success comes, you know, far between. Yeah. I, yeah, no, I think it's a great tour of what Blue Dragon is, how Blue Dragon is working. What is the purpose of Blue Dragon? Um, I have just four quick final questions. Fire away. Let you free. I took so much time already. Um, it's a bit more, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, some people like this question, some people hate it. So let's see with you. I'll, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, but yeah, let's say, imagine you can go back in time and you can, let's say you are teaching your first class at NEU. Um, not sure how old you were, but you can tell something to this younger uh, teacher, Michael. What would, what would you tell him? I, I would say keep going uh, keep, and keep your head up, especially looking back at those really early days. I got discouraged very, very easily. If, if someone said to me, ah, this is stupid or you don't know what you're doing, You know, I would spend weeks feeling terrible about that and analyzing that and thinking about that. And I wish I could go back and say, just stay focused. Don't, don't worry about the, the people who criticize. Mm. And focus on the people who, who are there and you had people already supporting you. It's yeah. yeah, like the glass half full. Yeah, I was so unsure of myself. And, and, and so any criticism would, would bring me undone. I, I, I'd love to go back. Uh, I was 27. Uh, I'd love to go back and grab myself by the ear and say, don't listen to them. Be, be confident. I hope we all had this older us who would tell us this. Because I feel like it's something I, I, ah. I, I face as well. I felt like many, not necessarily young, but people face that. So I think if yeah. we all had this older Michael who could tell us this. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, th I think the key is, sure, listen to, to criticism. Don't ignore it. Don't dismiss it. But also don't take it to heart. You know, decide for yourself what, what there is to learn in that. Um, I, I, I feel so sorry when I see other people discouraged. Um, but anyway, that's, so that's my answer to that question. That's a good okay. question. I love that question. 
Thank you. And um, yeah, how would you like people, whether you know it's a listeners who just listen to your story or, or people in general in life, how would you like people to know you for and remember you for? In, in a way, I, I do find that one hard to answer because actually what I want to say is it's okay to not remember me. If, if from listening to me and from learning about Blue Dragon, if the impact on you, on you is, is that your heart swells, if, if you are inspired, um, if, if you think, you know what, I'm going to do something good today, then, then that's the impact that I want. Forget me. Forget me. I'm nothing. Think about you and, and what you can do in this world. Um, I look. I lived in a caravan on a block of land when I was a kid. Uh, I, I, I failed at, at being a school teacher. I'm not. I'm not some great guy, you know, to um, to to think about. And I I'm no different to anyone listening to to this to this podcast. Turn inwards and and reflect on yourself. Well, that's. Uh... <laughs> Didn't expect this. <laughs> uh, well, actually, well, I say that, but it goes along many things you have said, and feel like it, it makes sense. Uh, yeah, it's not about you; it's about the big cause, the big purpose that you set for yourself. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, exactly. I really love your answer. Uh, how would you describe yourself in uh, three hashtags? <laughs> three hashtags. Wow. <laughs> Thank goodness I'm on Twitter. Um, hashtag exhausted. How's that for how's that for a good one? Uh, you know, Very inspiring. Please, <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd better I'd better make a hashtag inspiring then uh, as as my second one because I think even even someone who is exhausted um, and when I say I'm inspiring, maybe what I actually mean is um, uh, I look for ways to inspire other people um, and, and, you know, not just by saying, look at me, I'm inspiring. Uh, you, 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 I think you might've seen my blog, um, life is a long story.com. And, and, you know, my, the purpose of my blog is just to share something each week that will inspire someone, you know, to share a story about here's a girl who, who had the hardest time, but, but now is doing really well. So hashtag inspirational. And, Uh, a final hashtag, hey, um, learning, hashtag learning. Um, I, I'm constantly looking back thinking, wow, how did I make so many mistakes? And, and I know that in 10 years I'll be looking back thinking, wow, you know, 10 years ago <laughs> I was really getting it all wrong. So I'm, I am constantly learning. Cool. Cool. Thank you so much, Michael. And the final, final one is, you know, how can people get to know more about Blue Dragon? You mentioned your blog. So you post every Monday, I think, right? Something like yep. this every I week. Write, I write that blog every week and, uh, and, and it comes out on Monday. And it's on, our, it's on our Facebook page as well, on the Blue Dragon Facebook page. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Get, get, get yeah. over to the website and have a look there. And, and we're across, you know, Facebook and Twitter. Uh, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, um, and, and we're on all of those platforms, again, because we actually want to inspire. Our, our organizational purpose, we, which we, we 
we wrote this a few years ago, just just maybe three or four years ago, reflecting on all of all of the things that Blue Dragon does. We said, well, what are we what are we actually here for? And we said, well, we're here to give exceptional care to children and families. So in that, there's just a purely charitable cause, not a, not even a developmental. You know, people talk about charity versus development. And part of what we're here for is just to look after people, to care. But then maybe there's the yin and the yang here, or, or the, the other side of the coin is, while making the world better for everyone. So there's, there's a, a real outward-looking part of our, of our work. We want to inspire people. Um, and, and often I'll say, sometimes someone might say to me, well, why should I donate to Blue Dragon? And, and, and I'll respond, you don't have to, absolutely, as long as you're donating to someone, as long as you're doing something good. You know, I was an English teacher in Hanoi, and, and I could teach English to street kids. Who needs your help? Who, who needs you? What can you do that'll make life better for someone? Is it packing boxes for a local charity? Is it helping with accounting? Is it helping one of your neighbours with their tax return? You know, find find that way that 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 you can help and and so that's why we're on all of those different platforms trying to inspire people to uh to find that good in themselves and and care for others that was a long answer to that question i apologize oh no no it's great <laughs> we have time no worries <laughs> and you mentioned a bit but yeah how can people support blue dragon also yeah Well, I, I mentioned about Dragon Wings earlier, and, and that's a great way to, to help. Uh, if you want to make like a, a, you know, a modest contribution every month that really adds up to something and, and be part of something big, um, if you're in Dragon Wings, we send pretty regular emails just sharing stories, just telling people, this is, this is what your money has done. This, this child's life is better because of you. Uh, or or you, can, you can just donate it at any time. Um, we have some people who've put us in their will to, to give us a gift in their will. Um, we have businesses that, that donate. Um, and we, we work a lot with schools. So if there are any schools or universities um, or you know, students listening, there's actually a section on our website, especially for schools, where, where we provide resources and ideas for, for schools to learn from. So whoever you are and, and, and whatever your, your situation in life, there's a way that you can connect with Blue Dragon. Perfect. Thank you so much, Michael. So everyone, uh, hope I'm sure you will get inspired by the story of Michael. Um, as he mentioned, turn inwards, see what... I mean, it's, I really love your question, your, your answer when I asked you, why did you teach English to these street kids? And you said, because it's what I was good at. I think it's a great question to ask. And it can be a difficult answer when you don't know what you are good at. But uh, yeah, like if you are good at something, it's something maybe other people can learn from. If you like Blue Dragon's work, if you want to receive cool stories every Monday, Uh, join the Blue Wings, uh, donate something. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to finish this episode by thank you so much. I learned so much. I was super inspired. Uh, 
And yeah, very, very proud to be part of this Blue Wings. <laughs> no, thank you, Ding Dong. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been great talking to you. And, and I hope that, that this discussion today might, might spark some ideas and creativity in, in people. And who, I, I suspect people who listen to your podcast are already interested in the wide world and in helping others. So I'm really happy to be part of this. Thank you. Yeah, no, no. And for me, it's great. It's first time I speak about uh, topics around street kids and around trafficking. Uh, so it's a great, I mean, I don't like this word, but great addition to all the different social environmental issues I've been speaking about. But yeah, for me, it's really, really wanted to hear more about Blue Dragon. So yeah, super, super happy. Thank you. Thank you. It's really been nice talking to you. Congrats for listening until the end of this episode. Of course, to best support Lifeline, you can share this episode to two of your friends and subscribe to the next episodes on any platform. See you next time.